Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Real Air Podcast. I'm Ian Parkinson and our guest on this edition is the uh, broadcaster, commentator and now star not only of screen but stage as well, Ned Bolting. No, it's you I'm talking about. Hello, Ian. (laughs) Welcome back. Uh, And the Ruler editor, Ian Cleverly. Last time we met uh, for the podcast, Ned, we were in uh, Ealing Studios. Yeah, St. Trinian's. This with, time last uh, year? Yeah, yeah, this time last year uh, with Dave Miller. The time before that, of course, we were here. Uh, I should explain where we are. We're at Hernhill Velodrome in South London, but we were in the middle of the field over there uh, because at the time the uh, building work on this extraordinary new pavilion had not even started. Um, it's a pretty amazing transformation, isn't it? No, it's just a great... I mean, I've been coming down here for two or three years as an as a active participant, and I've almost forgotten what it was like when there was nothing here. And, they, you know, you used to have to kind of fumble around in the porter cams out the back to find a toilet, and, you know, and the tap was over there and all that, and there was no... It's just great. There's even a rumour that the coffee machine might be up and active in a second. It sounds like the coffee so, um, machine yeah, is, uh, is, is brewing up. For anyone who's not been down here, even if you don't come down to ride, just come and have a look if you're passing by. It's great. Yeah, there was a, a race here on Sunday, a Brixton uh, CC uh, Madison uh, race, and it was extraordinary because it was a beautiful sunny day, people sitting out on the steps, having the jerk chicken, drinking a beer. It was just an extraordinary transformation. You were here as well, weren't you? Indeed, it was, it was the ultimate Brixton CC meeting. You know? It had all the, all the vibes going. Uh, uh, plus, you could actually... I mean, it, and it was blisteringly hot as well. So yeah. it, this, <laughs> it really came into its own, this place, you know, sitting on the steps in the shade. So... Away from the velodrome. Yeah. Tour de France is coming yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this time next week, well, we're pre-recording this, obviously, so I don't know when you're going to be listening to this podcast, but very imminently I'm heading for Dusseldorf in Nordrhein-Westfalen. And the first time the tour started there since, when was it? 80? should know this, shouldn't I? should trip off the tongue. What I do remember reading about, and it just makes me laugh every time I think about it, was that for one minute, that Tour de France was led on paper. The virtual maillot jaune was Shane Sutton. He was the first man off the start ramp in the opening time trial. And, of course, he posted the best time and it lasted less than a minute, actually. Whatever happened to him? Where's he now? Yeah. How many tours is this? This will be number 15. Still enjoying it? Yeah, loving it. Probably more than ever. I was um, perhaps like we all do. We, we, you know, if you've been in a job for quite a while, I, I think possibly enough, with hindsight, I was getting a little bit stale in what I was doing, you know, simply presenting and reporting, talking to riders at the start and finish and doing other bits and pieces. And uh, switching to commentating has kind of reinvigorated my um, obsession with, the, with the, this race in particular. Yep. And Dave Miller going to be with you? Dave's, Dave's there the whole way around. And um, I think really kind of more and more buying into his new role as a broadcaster and not as a racer. You know. 
being something of a Germanophile, if that's the right word, yeah. you're probably looking forward to the start in Germany I'm more than more I, than I am usual. Hu hugely, and um, I think it's going to, in much the same way, I always hesitate to bring other sports into a cycling podcast, but I do remember, when I, my personal background is I spent a few years after I graduated from university in the early 90s, you know, in various states of unemployment, but living and thoroughly enjoying my life in Hamburg, in the north of Germany, and learned to speak German kind of pretty fluently back then, um, and really fell in love with the country. Then in my professional life, I came back to London eventually, I, I came back as a football journalist to cover the World Cup, Football World Cup in 2006, and told all my colleagues, you know, Germany's going to blow you away. You're going to be completely surprised by what a wonderful, warm, welcoming country it is and how much there is to see and do. And all of them were sceptical and all of them came away from that month thinking, blimey, how come we didn't know? Now, I think the secret's out a little bit now about yeah, Germany. Yeah. But I think nonetheless, I think the viewing public are going to be kind of taken by the, what the Grand Depart looks and smells and feels like in Dusseldorf. And I think it's going to be reminiscent of the Giro when it started in last year in the Netherlands, in the Gelderland. Um, that was amazing. I don't know if you know the scenes of the... I mean, I know we, we obsess with our own predilection towards packing the streets and watching the bike races but the Dutch and the Germans will do it in equal measure as well it's going to be a terrific start great send-off what else are you looking forward to uh, in this year's tour any particular stages you think that are going to stand out well it's a funny one isn't it because normally you'd go oh it'll be Alpe d'Huez or Mont Ventoux and you know actually normally those stages don't necessarily produce the drama but they're always the one you the ones you highlight um well they're kind of notable by their absence um there are nine not even questionable, but fairly nailed on sprinter stages, which is a very large number, actually. Normally, Cavendish looks at this and they, his ilk, and he goes, ooh, six, maybe seven. It must be years since there's been nine. Back to the uh, LeBlanc era, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, uh, Of tour design. I, I can't remember one in the, in the Prudhomme era, which has been, let's face it, a decade now. Um, so it's a throwback tour, for better or worse. There's only 36 kilometres, is it, of time trialling, with 13 at the beginning, and uh, the penultimate stage in Marseille is a 23-kilometre time trial. It's very short. Um, none of the iconic summit finishes are there, except for, I think we can now call it iconic, La Planche des Belles Filles, the plank of the beautiful girls, um, which is the third visit now. And it's only a 5.5k climb off the top of my head. Uh, it's quite steep, with that incredibly steep little ramp at the end. But actually, I think that'll produce a really good race, because it's only short. <laughs> I, I often think that the, the um, tour designers uh, or the grand tour designers slightly overthink the, the, the idea that we have, the notion that we have to have all these iconic climbs and these mega stages and stuff like that. The, the racers make the race, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll race it no matter yeah. what. Uh, yeah. So, so it, 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 I think people get a little bit too, you know, maybe overthink it. I would agree. And my eye, actually, if I'm drawn to anything on this year's, you know, when you look at the route map, um, apart from the massive transfers, once again, that the whole caravan are going to have to make. But my eye is drawn, actually, to the two stages through the Massif Central, which isn't something we do every year. More, normally, the race ducks south of that. And, you know, you get as fast as you can between the Alps and the Pyrenees or vice versa. This year, we do go into the mountains again. And boy, are they mountains. You know, we go to Le puy en velay places like that. And... Um, Weather can be a bit questionable there. The terrain's really hard, and maybe they'll produce some of the most unexpected and unpredictable racing. That'd be good, just as legs are getting tired. Who's going to win them? Well, um, rubbish at this, as anyone who's listened to my predictions down the years know. Uh, so I'll say this. I don't think Richie Port will win. I think if you, if you are full out in your attempts to win the, the Dauphiné and you don't, 
then it doesn't suggest that you've got it necessarily in your locker to win over three weeks with um, strengthening riders, you know, riding themselves into form alongside you and against you. So, so once again, I think we're looking at um, we're looking at Froome and Quintana, uh, and of the two, I would say, I, 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 I've, from what I understand, there are serious doubts about Froome's condition within the Team Sky camp, although they'd never admit that publicly. They have been a little concerned. So I would say, um, Mr. Mr. Pokerface himself was probably, with hindsight, riding the Giro at, at three quarters of his capacity and, and I think he, he, was all, he was actually all about the Tour de France this year and it suits him so let's go with Quintana's first ever Tour de France win. It's interesting you say that about Froome because I just kind of assumed that after the Dauphiné they just kind of go away and go well that's, that's fine we just do a little few tweaks well, and, you might be and right, it'll yeah. all be good but well, no but if that's what you've, you're, you're uh, hearing. This was ahead of the Dauphiné. Yeah right. This was ahead of the Dauphiné. Now he didn't win the Dauphiné he didn't actually come close but you know not for one to try he kind of it was a bit of an all or nothing Last stage, wasn't it, to try and recapture that jersey full of panache, much like one of my moves on the track. <laughs> Your um, famous breaks with yeah, ten laps to go. Well, I just climbed off every time today. Um, but you know, he's Chris Froome, isn't he? And he does have the huge advantage of having won it three times. But if he does win it, I think you know, I, I think if I think it'll it'll go down as his most interesting and his perhaps his greatest because he probably you know what he won't do is is be the strongest rider in week one, get to the mountains smash everyone to pieces, gain two and a half minutes and then just hang on and get slowly weaker. I don't think he's going to, if he does win, I don't think he'll be like that. So he might have to come from behind and take the jersey in the final week. Who knows, he might take the jersey in Marseille on stage 20. And if, if he does that, then we'll have a great, we'll have a great race, you know. So it's, it, I, once again, I think it's, um, it's beautifully set up, uh, wildly unpredictable, Port, Quintana, and uh, Froome are the standout candidates. Bardet, uh, um, Pino, Fulsang, Aru are worthy of note. And so too is Simon Yates. Although on the evidence of this season, I think it's a year or two too early for him still. And Chavez hasn't raced much. But there's some interesting double-headed teams. Sky's one of them. <laughs> you know, interesting to see how Geraint Thomas, what role he's accorded. Valverde is, of course, riding for Quintana, but he's Alejandro Valverde. I've forgotten to mention Alberto Considor. And I've forgotten to mention his so-called support rider, Balka Mollema, who has twice been in, in second place over the last eight tours, going into the final week of racing. And then yeah, Mollema's an interesting wild card, isn't he? He is, he is. Uh, rode a m modest uh, Giro d'Italia, and perhaps he's held something back. And I, you know, Considor looks like he might be a, a bust flush at this point. And watch out for Mollema. I'm not alone, I'm sure, in thinking, you know, that one thing we could really do without is a sort of Froome procession, you know, from week one uh, again. And it sounds, you know, from what you're saying, is that we may not have one. Don't think we will. Be surprised. Uh, my co-pilot, Andy McGrath, came up with an interesting stat yesterday. For those who, um, you know, have a superstitious bent, uh, nobody has ever won the tour four times. And that's uh, not as stupid as it sounds. Obviously, yeah. people have won four and then five, yeah. but nobody has won it four times that's, only. Ah, that's, mm, ah, ah, mm. ah. that's completely meaningless, isn't it? Yeah, it's absolutely <laughs> pointless. I, I just wish I'd not worthy, said it now, to be honest. But, I mean, you know, he stands on the... Well, no, he doesn't stand on the brink. He's got, he's got one foot and half of the other one in history already, Chris Froome. It's because his career stops now and he doesn't achieve anything else on the Tour de France. He's already one of the greats. It, it is weird, though, isn't it? I spent um, a bit of time a few days uh, recently in Italy with a whole sort of group of international cycling journalists. And I was surprised at the scepticism 
the hostility actually that was coming from you know, people from France, from Spain, from Italy, from Holland, from the, um, Scandinavia, about Froome and, and Sky. It, 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 I think you can, over here, we live in a bit of a bubble um, in terms of what the rest of the cycling world thinks. Yeah, undoubtedly true. Although I would suggest for anyone with their eyes open, and I'd like to credit the cycling public in this country for having their eyes open. I think that bubble's been you know, somewhat pricked by a Sky's no needle policy, sure, or lack of it. Um, you know, I think we're slightly wiser to their truer nature. Uh, and what I, what I, what I say, what, what I mean by that is to say that it, it ain't what they were cracked up to be in terms of their anti-doping policy. That's that's self-evident. And I think it has rubbed people up no end on the continent because they did. They had a supercilious attitude towards the peloton. There's no doubt about it. They had the bigger budget. They thought that no one was. They thought everyone was in the dark ages. Everyone was backwards. They had a point to a certain extent. Um, they haven't made friends, they haven't made friends, and they won't be able to make friends in their current guise with their current um, leadership and their current uh, crop of riders and tactics. But they, they're pretty good at winning races. Four out of five tours is an astonishing return in this era. And let's face it, I think even their hardest critics um, of any hue, if they're, if they're reasonable about it, would say, you know, if, if Sky are guilty in inverted commas of unethical practice, then we're not comparing like with like when you go roll the years back and you think about what was going on 20 years ago. You know, it's a different order of um, malfeasance, isn't it? It's not, it's not the same. It's not the same. I thought uh, Matt Seaton made an interesting point in his column a couple of issues back where he said Brits always had this idea that, oh, we don't do that. You know, yeah. it's, it's, that's, that's what they do over there. Mm. What's happened in the last few months with British Cycling and with Sky is opened a lot of people's eyes to actually we, we shouldn't just blindly trust that, that everything is in order, you know, question everything. Yeah, but I mean, that's, that's true of wider public discourse and life in every field and yeah. every year, you know, ever since 2008 and the banking crisis and all that, you know, cycling's no different. Well, one thing I would say about the Peloton and Sky's reputation is... Um, uh, I would, I mean, um, this is, I haven't got any hard evidence for this, it's just anecdotal really, but I would suggest that of the 198 riders minus the nine who turn out for Team Sky, so whatever, the 189 riders who don't ride for Team Sky but start the Tour de France, not many of them wouldn't bite their hands off for a chance for riding for Team Sky. So ask the riders what they think of Team Sky and you might get a very different answer. The other big event in your year has been your, your tour, Bicology. Yeah. Uh, tour of uh, theatres. I do remember probably more than a year or so uh, ago now you saying that uh, saying to me yeah, that your agent had uh, decided to book a series of uh, yeah, theatres yeah, yeah. and you were going to uh, go on and talk about cycling. Yeah, you almost forgot to ask whether I thought I could do it or not. You know, you can, oh yeah, you can you can do a one man comedy show that's two hours long about cycling, can't you? And I went, well, I have to now because you booked the theatres. <laughs> but I didn't really. It was a it was a bit of a mad proposition. Um, some, some West End producers, you know, basically came up with the idea. They do, they do similar shows with cricket and I think golf and as well. And they kind of thought, well, sooner or later, someone's going to do one about cycling. But I've done a, I've done a theatre tour now. I have one under my belt. We did uh, 15 shows last year, something like 14. And it went well enough for them to go, right, let's do 25. And this time, let's make the theatres bigger. So we've got kind of 800-seater theatres this time. And final date in the West End, the Lyric Theatre Shaftesbury Avenue, darling. You're playing the West End. I am playing the West End for one night only. It's where <laughs> I walked past it the other day and my heart leapt because I, I really, I've got to stand on stage there. At the moment, Thriller, the Michael Jackson musical is playing there and during their downtime, I pop in for one night only. 
presumably have to move all sorts of Michael Jackson props off the stage and sort of like make a bit of space for myself. I hope, I hope they're actually going to put the, the, the proper billboard up above, you know, even yeah. if it was only for one night, because I want to get a shot of that. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, there'll be all sorts of photo opportunities. That, that peculiar shot with your helmet and the... Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, no, I quite like that image, actually. There's the poster images of me with a GoPro on my yeah. hat. Because a lot of it... So the, the, the show roughly divides into sort of like a half of it, roughly in content-wise, is kind of Tour de france because I think a lot of people want to want to talk about that. But half of it is a bit ranty, and there's a bit of kind of me, my venting a lot of spleen, and basically biting the hand that feeds me about kind of like contemporary cycling culture and the way it expresses itself in all its idiosyncrasies in this country. Not all of which is good, most of which is risible. And... Uh, and we have a lot of fun. At least I have a lot of fun. And the audience sit there with their arms folded going, I can't believe you just said that about Strava. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I try and slay a lot of holy cows. Um, have you learned things from the audience as well? I mean, presumably you started off yeah. Yeah, with one thing in your mind, but uh, after 18 dates or whatever it is, you must have... Uh... Oh, fantastic amounts. There, I mean, there's no... You know, telly is... Um, you don't find out until a bit later when you look at Twitter. <laughs> when you do telly but you don't have that instant feedback you know you're just talking to a lens or talking into a microphone it's very very remote feeling actually and it's when you get used to telly you get used to it and I no longer get nervous when I'm broadcasting on telly boy do I get nervous on stage though because the feeling of when a joke doesn't quite work we go just just is the worst feeling and when you do when something unexpected just hits the mark it's brilliant and it take you off instantly onto a tangent that you never knew there so I'm I love it. I love the I love the kind of like develop and the show is very different from when it starts to 25 dates later. It's added bits and that's largely down to the audience guiding me really on what works and what doesn't work, you know. I haven't seen it. I will uh, get along to uh, this tour. I do know that one of the things you do yeah. is ask for questions from the audience yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, pick them out yes. at, at random. Um, well, we haven't really got an audience here. We've got a, a rabble of old blokes who, yeah. Um, yeah. who race track yeah. and I did ask them earlier on for some uh, random okay. questions. Shall I I choose a few yeah. at random. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right, yeah. this is... These, by the way. These are hitting me yeah. unprepared. Um, okay, let's start with this one. I love David Miller on the commentary team, ah. but how many espressos does he have before he goes on set? That's a good question. That's a good question. I'm trying to think how honestly I can answer this. <laughs> espressos aren't, aren't the only product of choice on occasion. They're not the only fruit. They're not the only... <laughs> espresso are not, not the only fruit. Um... Sometimes yeah. he does seem unnecessarily cheerful. Yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> Does it wear off? <laughs> does it wear off in the middle? There must so be a lull. Funny, quite funny, actually, because David is... Um, David is uh, and we both tend towards being soporific occasionally. I'm probably one of our criticisms of our commentaries is sometimes we sound a bit like this. In the middle of a kind of, you know, 110 kilometres to go and the break is 6.35 up the road and it's two Frenchmen, you know, and there's no absolute... Whatever. They're quite... And bear in mind... The Tour de France is going to be broadcast in its entirety this year, with every pedal stroke from the neutralised rollout all to the finish and all that sort of thing. Yeah, I was going to ask that. How, you know, on some of those stages mm. where the peloton is rolling through endless countryside, which looks very similar. Yeah, yeah. They, I don't envy you your job. Yeah, although, uh, mad as it sounds, right, I, if I were watching this at home, I would not be paying any attention to the commentary team at that point. <laughs> I normally, I watch a lot of cycling at home, and um, I love that stage of a race, because I normally just nod off on the couch, to be perfectly honest with you. and just I love the white noise of a bike race going on. <laughs> I am self-employed. 
I don't have a place in work. I just love the I love the gen the gen, the gentle drift of the commentator talking nonsense, you know, like when it's 85 kilometres still to go, and I kind of wake up at 40 kilometres to go. Um, and, and some of it is actually just about the event, isn't it? I mean, sometimes yeah. I watch. I don't care who wins the stage. You know, I've been watching uh, the Tour de France on telly probably since like, 86 or whenever you know it started yeah. on Channel yeah. Four. Yeah. Always watch it, and half the time I'm just looking at the scenery and just yeah. the whole yeah. the whole event, you know, the whole spectacle of it. There, there, there is a lot of that. And it's something I've got to pay a bit more attention to. And I think, um, you know, I think the, um, the Tour de France public, in particular, the Tour de France public, expect that. And they want to hear about the grapes that are planted there and the, and the chateaus that are by the side of the road. And quite rightly so, actually. So I need to develop that side of our commentary a little bit more. That said, that said, even... This is one of the great pleasures I have working with David in particular. And I've worked with other co-commentators who are excellent. But David has this kind of supernatural sense of what's going on in a bike race. So when you say there's nothing going on, and Ian, you might say there's not much going on there, and I might feel there's not much going on there. If you're commentating with David Miller, you find out pretty quickly you're wrong, because even in a kind of classic five-man breakaway with four pro-continental teams and one Cannondale rider, <laughs> even in that kind of classic breakaway, David spots stuff that you and I would have no clue about, you know? Like, he will be very, very acutely aware of the fact that when that rider, let's say the Cannondale rider, Dylan Van Baal, for example, when he goes to the front, and they look like they're taking equal turns, Van Baal's doing, like, he's doing, like, 40% of... Soft tapping. Uh, yeah, he's soft tapping. Oh, he's just moving, you know, and, he's, and there's little things that are just there, aware, you know, alive to him that would be honestly invisible to the rest of us. And when, the, when you cut up the Moto2 shot of the front of the peloton and the chase being orchestrated ostensibly by Sky, let's say, and Luke Rowney and Stannard on the front, David's not looking at Luke Rowney and Stannard. He's actually looking 15, 16 wheels further back down the line. He's taught me to do that now. That's where the race is happening. And he's looking for all those little nuanced moves as one team starts to get closer to the front and into fourth position and stuff like that. So there is actually all sorts going on, even when there's nothing going on. Uh, to go back to the question, how many espressos does uh, Dave Miller? At least seven. <laughs> At least seven. He's a seven espresso kind of guy. Okay. Um, another question. Race radios, yes or no? No. Okay. Uh, I mean, how... no, no, they shouldn't have them, right? They <laughs> yeah, should, yeah, they should yeah. be banned. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't, why can't we just ban them? Uh, well, let's just try it. A proper experiment. Just get rid of the damn things. Don't buy the safety argument. Power meters, yes or no? Uh, uh, ban them. 100%. Get them off the bikes. Why? So Chris Froome says, uh, he kind of, when he was, that was put to him last year on the tour, he kind of said, oh, yeah, well, yeah, and they might as well just take, you know, give us a single-speed bike. Well, no, but power meters, you know, the bikes, bike technology is one thing. Power meters have definitely changed the way that races are orchestrated and not for the better. On the time trial, when they swap bikes... Um, can they, and has everyone, anyone thought of using a cast iron bike on the downhills or putting lead weight on? You see a bit of that, don't, don't you, on mountain time trials when they swap bikes, um, they'll use a conventional road bike on the uphill bit and then they'll switch to a TT bike for the downhill section sometimes. That was a feature of Chris Froome's first win in 2013, I think. Um, I've, read, I've read some... I think it's illegal. Though. I've read some scientific evidence that, that suggests that the... Um, being heavy on a downhill actually has no advantage whatsoever. Now, now, anecdotally, I would suggest that's complete nonsense because on a downhill, and I'm a good descender, a heavy bloke will just, you know, go past me in, in exactly the same position. Right, but ha who descends better, Naira Quintana or Thibaut Pinot? Quintana descends brilliantly. You know, Roman Bardet is one of the best in the world. He weighs precious little. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm not convinced there'd be any... I don't think there would be, no, no. Favourite cycling commentator of the last 20 years? 
Um, <laughs> that's, 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 mine, that's, mine's, mine's Ned. Uh, yeah, so is mine, obviously. That's, that's yeah. not just because he's... That's a, hard, that's a very hard question because it's a very small world, world and we all work together and I wouldn't like to single anyone out, I'm afraid. But, uh, but, but can I just doff my cap to the man I've replaced? Phil, Phil Liggett's voice is still, for me, synonymous with the summer in the Tour de France. When you first started covering the Tour, yeah. what percentage of riders do you now think were not doping? Double negative there in the question, I think. Crikey, what, in 2003, how many clean riders were there in the 2003 peloton? Flipping heck. Single digits. I don't know if I'm being overly pessimistic that, there. But, yeah, I don't uh, know. I'd have gone to 50-50, but I don't know. 50-50, you think? Sounds a bit optimistic, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, well, just me. Could you put a percentage on it now? Would you like to put a percentage on it now? Yeah, I would. I would say whatever that percentage is that we'll never know, that Ian and I have slightly disagreed on, but let's say it's a minority. Uh, whatever that was, flip it round and reverse it. And the last one, this is from uh, Roy, Roy Page. Yeah, um, good old Roy. Gentleman Roy. He will always ask a gentle question because he's a gentleman, yeah. I hope. Uh, will there be a new book, says Roy, to accompany the one-man show? No. Why not? Because I'm writing a book about darts at the moment. Oh, yeah. Lazy git. Sorry. Not yet, anyway, Roy. OK. So, uh, Ruler 17.4 yes. um, is in the shops at the moment. Yes, the big old Tour de France monster special. 21 stages, 21 stories, and a, a, a lovely big uh, piece by our German-based team at the front about the German Grand Depart and, and the general kind of uh, resurrection of, of cycling popularity in Germany, which it seems to be, you know, on a on a nice, pleasantly upward trajectory again. Can I just ask uh, Neil? Why do I call you Neil? Ian, um, when you have to, you, you kind of like have to and probably enjoy doing a Tour de France one every year because it's kind of like the biggest race in the calendar. But is there a bit of you that goes, oh, I've got to do the Tour de France one now because it's such a well-trodden path and Ruler almost specialises or prides itself in digging out the kind of the stories less told and the, the you know, the little niches of cycling. Is it a tough gig? No, we, we, we love doing it. Um, I'm not just saying that. I mean, we've done, we've done it in this format for the last three years. There's never any sense as like we're treading old ground because yeah. we base... We, we, look at the, we look at the route and we find a story related to every stage of that route loosely. I mean, some of them we just, frankly, have to shoehorn in because there's nothing <laughs> of interest. But, you know, it, 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 what the feedback we've got from people is they've... Some of the stories they've enjoyed most have actually been not about cycling. You know, yeah. the one that Max Leonard wrote about the Maginot Line yeah. is, is a fascinating yeah. little read. And uh, Roger Blachon, the, car- the, 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 the cartoon, former keep cartoonist whose cover is on the, the members issue. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful work. Oh, yeah, and yeah. very funny, yeah. very funny. His, his, uh, his one with um, Graham O'Brien actually hooked up to a washing machine and his wife standing there. Telling him to go faster to spin the clothing, I think is just, you know, genius piece of work. So no, we love it. Have you had a chance to look through and um, pick a favourite photograph? Yeah, I, I unfortunately I nicked Ian's, so he had to think again. No, that's fine. That's fine. I've gone straight for uh, Michael Bland's portrait of Roman Bardet, uh, which is uh, fantastic, beautifully lit, um, studied very uh, carefully composed um must take them quite a lot of time i should imagine to get it um indoors he's not wearing lycra he's wearing a collarless shirt and a jacket and he looks um 
that combination of immensely fragile and, um, and but you know because you've seen him race that has extraordinary hidden reserves of strength and stamina and um, strength of will actually that Roman Bardet has and self-belief uh, and that's all in there for me and it's, he's a he's a beautiful rider to watch isn't he he's just um, you know of the, of the two great French hopes Pino and Bardet I think probably they're both nice guys really nice guys but you kind of like instinctively I think the romantic in us all kind of wants Bardet to be the one who does it absolutely you know? yeah yeah He's just a fascinating kid. I mean, we, Andy, um, Andy and me just sent him a really off-the-wall Q&A with slightly bizarre questions. And, I mean, you know, if, when you have your fantasy dinner party and you come up with Serge Gainsbourg, Javier Dolan, he's a Canadian actor apparently, um, and Bradley Wiggins over a few pints of beer. Now, that's an interesting threesome. But the, my favourite was the opening. I was like, what's your karaoke song of choice? To which he came up with, Les Lacs du Connemara by Michel Sardou. I will actually put that up on the on the uh, <coughs> the podcast page so people can hear what and a try and what try a, and sing along. what a tricky piece of work that <laughs> is. I mean, uh, hats off to him if he can pull that off at karaoke. Then uh, I've got a whole new level of respect for him. My um, uh, commentating compadre, who we talked about, David Miller, does a bit of work with AG Tuala Mondial because he has a connection with their bike, their new bike brand. Uh, that they ride these days and they have done a bit like um, FTJ did a, a last year they've, they've started to take themselves a bit more seriously in terms of time trialling and Bardet needs to if he's ever going to win the, the Grand Tour it's still a weakness of his um, so he spent a bit of time in the wind tunnel and off the in, outside of the wind tunnel just on time trial technique with Bardet and we were commentating on, um, just the other day on the Dauphiné and Bardet had another average average uh, time trial that basically lost him any chance of actually winning the race and uh, as soon as he'd finished, you know, he was pinging text messages back to David Miller, asking, asking what he thought was good and what he thought was bad. And David, David just said to him, Look, "Actually, you're going, you're going too hard. You're, you're you're just trying to you're trying to hit a maximum call wattage that you think you can stay in and hold it. And you've got to be you're not that kind of rider. You need to be someone else. You know, you need to you need to develop a different a different way of doing. It. And you need still to work on your technique. But he does that. That will be." Hey, it's a great tour for him with a, with a limited time trialling. You know, it'll um, suit him this year. Ian, after Ned had pinched yours, you chose another one? Yes, because this was a, it was a toss-up for this for me. This is actually, um, uh, when I say it's my photo, it's, it's uh, uh, about 18 photos. Um, it's Caleb Ewan, shot from the side. Um, you know, I mean, I, I did give a brief to the photographer and said, come back with some Edward Moybridge-esque kind of... You know, I want to see you in, in full flight, nose on the front wheel, you know, just from start to finish, including the, the thrust. It's, it's, it's lovely. I just love watching sprinters do what they do. And I think, and that was by uh, Joel Hewitt. From a commentator's point of view, he's a delight. There is no mistaking Caleb Ewan in a bunch sprint from that head-on head shot. Well, there's actually, I say there's no mistaking it, often there's no seeing him. <laughs> his his lead-out man, uh, who's only just signed for Orica... Um, what they're called these days, Orica Scott. Um, Roger Kluger is a track sprinter in his own right, big German guy, and they've, they've just hit it off as a sort of partnership straight from the desert races in February. And uh, they're going to be a big feature of the Tour de France, those two. And um, he's vast. I mean, all German sprinters seem to be, but he's massive. And Ewan literally disappears behind him. 
But he's also very upright, Roger Kluger, so you can pick him out like a lighthouse coming towards you, and then you know, you know that this little figure is just going to shoot out from behind his wheel. Very, very distinctive, and no one does it quite like that. I mean, only Cavendish ever sprinted like that, but even Ewan's position is more extreme. Is there anybody in a sprint that you struggle to identify because they haven't, they, there's just something about their... There are, is it yeah. maybe down to colour of jersey or just because there's something about them that's Do you know, weird, not, weirdly, not the, unru- the Tour you know, de France is the easiest sprint to call because it's all the big names and yes, they always yes, win. Yes. You know, Nobody ever pulls a real surprise in the Tour de France in a bunch of sprints. It's always one of the big favourites who win the... Go and commentate at the Arctic Race of Norway where everyone brings their kind of... You know, if it's not going to be Christoph, it could be anyone. You know, that's when you really earn your money. But there are entire teams of riders who... There's something about the kit and something about their recruitment policy. They all look identical. They all seem to look identical. Movistar does my head in. If it's not Valverde, who's stubbly and always wears those mirror shades, and it's not Rojas, who always seems to have the national champion's jersey, you know, all those stripes like that, um, or Valverde does, and it's not Quintana, it could be anyone. And they're called Hernandez and Herrada and Fernandez, and they're yeah, just kind of interchangeable. And they all have roughly the same capacity to climb really well. You know, they do my head in. Can I choose one of Christophe Ramon's uh, photographs of uh, Liège in the article by uh, Morten Okbo about Liège? Uh, have you been to Liège? I can only hope those pictures weren't paid for by the Liège tourist board. <laughs> there is something really nice about those sort of northern French and Belgian towns that are grim, but sort of don't pretend to be anything other than a sort of industrial town. No, there's, no, there's nothing nice about them. <laughs> I uh, actually the train station no, is, is the very, main square in Liège. The main yeah, square in Liège is all right. But and like, I, I I said to Morton, who was going to Liège for for Liège Bastogne, I said again, I knew he would take up the challenge. I said I do not want another of these pieces telling me how crap Liège is. Yeah. It's, it, it, that would that would be pointless. And he does a good job of, of ripping apart everybody else's arguments. I uh, went to uh, liege Bastogne liege and, and rode the sportive version of it a few years ago, and you could understand why people went to Bastogne, but not necessarily why they would come back again. Uh, because, yeah, it's, uh, it's a lovely part of the world, um, but Liege is not the... Uh, it's, it's real. It is real. It's gritty and real. Yeah, but there's nothing, wrong with, there's nothing wrong with that. So all that remains, I think is the Ruler Podcast Quiz. The last uh, edition was the Giro um, edition, and uh, Adam Cotum won that, won the prize there. The next podcast will be along very soon, we hope, in a couple of weeks' time. And it should feature, among other things, an interview with Jeremy Whittle about his new book on Mont Ventoux. Oh, I read that. It's great, isn't it? Yeah, it's really it's interesting. It's an intense hit. Yeah. Yeah. It because is. actually, you know, I've read so many books about the tour. Yeah. But actually, he does seem to have found in writing a book about a single mountain. Yeah. Some really interesting stories. All the kind of yeah. the stories we know are in there about Simpson and Pantani yeah. and Armstrong and yeah. Eddie Merckx. I I started it with great trepidation, thinking, now nah, you know it's going to be the same old, and it and it wasn't. I you know I think he's done a smashing job and really brought it alive. And I I just didn't think you could write. A whole book about a uh, mountain. And right, right towards the end, when he talks to um, Tom Tom Simpson's daughter, hang on for that chapter because that um, there's one or two lines in there that will um, it's gut wrenching stuff actually. Yeah, really, really interesting. Yeah, it's a it's a great book, and you can win uh, a signed copy by answering the following question: When did Mont Ventoux first appear as part of the tour route? 
go to the Ruler website, check out the podcast page. The details on how to enter will be there. Uh, that's pretty much it for this uh, edition. Ned Bolting, thanks for joining us. Have a, have a great time in, in France. You actually have a question for us, I believe. I do. It's something that's been bothering me for a while. Um, and uh, it's just something I've noticed that why, given that the Tour de France is starting in Germany, why do no German riders since Jan Ulrich have German names like Ulf or Horst? Olaf. Or Olaf. That's, I don't yeah. think that's a German, no, it's not name, a German is it? name. Olaf Ludwig. Yeah, okay, all right. All right, yeah, okay. Good. Yeah. Um, Thank you. I'll take that one. Because they're all called John Degenkopf, Marcel Kittel, Andre Greipel, Emmanuel Buchmann, etc., etc. Tony. Et Tony Martin. That's what's going on. Linus Gerdemann, etc. Linus probably is a German name. No, isn't it's it? an American name. Did you never read Peanuts? Yeah, but wasn't Linus a child of. German immigrants. Whoa. Can, we, can we just stop now? <laughs> OK. Uh, Ian Cleverly, thanks for joining us as well. Uh, we'll um, see you for the next one very soon. Enjoy the tour.